Do you ever wonder what happened to your friends from high school? I mean, you were so close. You laughed together, you cried together, you shared some of the best years of your lives together. And yet, somehow through life, you just lost touch. Now it's time to relive those moments once again. Introducing the podcast that takes you back in time to the place where it all began. This is Class Reunion. We're bringing you all the gossip, secrets, and scandals from your high school days that you won't want to miss. Join us as we catch up with old classmates and dive into the wildest stories from our high school days. From those legendary parties to the infamous cliques, we're spilling all the tea on who's who and what really went down. So grab a seat, turn your volume up, and get ready for a trip down memory lane. Class Reunion, the podcast that reunites us all. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Class Reunion. So glad you are here to join me. I am going to talk about another single episode where we have entered the pothole phase of life which we have all experienced, especially if you live in Michigan. (laughs) But this goes back to the downfall of 08 and 09. So I left you where, you know, I was divorced, living in Troy, and all of those type of storylines up until this point are just normal things that, that you'd go through. I will say, throw in a little adoption that didn't go through. I, I mentioned this during Jennifer Berkemeyer's episode where she talked about uh, adopting her daughter from Haiti. And I had before 08 and 09 gone through that process with Guatemala and then Panama. And and that's a story that's, you know, it didn't happen and I've talked about it before. So I'm just going to kind of move on and fast forward. But I did purchase a home in Troy subdivision thinking that it would be filled with more than just Joseph and myself. (laughs) that there'd be a little girl in there. But that's okay. So I did go to a street called Furwood. It was by Hamilton Elementary School. And I met the best neighbors ever. So it really was a very positive time in our life. And we had a great, great time. But then 08 happened. And when I say things crashed in the big short, I was probably one of the files that they based the movie off of. I mean, seriously. So I had purchased this home by the skin of my teeth. I actually had a loan that was all set to go and the day of closing. So I was closing on a Friday and I had met with my loan officer a thousand times. It was with National City Mortgage. I mean, I had met with him a lot. There just wasn't anything to discuss. I wasn't rich. We knew the terms of the loan. We knew my down payment. I mean, what could change every week? We we had gone through it with a fine tooth comb. And that day at nine o'clock, when I went to go close on the house, my mortgage company changed all the terms and conditions. And suddenly they said I was a high risk, which I wasn't, if you watch the movie. And my mortgage was now going to be close to $800 more a month, which now put me in a PMI situation, which I wasn't qualifying for previously. And they discounted any of the assets that I had in my name. Now, I know looking back, there was a lot I could have done different, but two things happened. And a lot of people ran into this and they especially knew it with me. It's a Friday close. What are you going to do? It's nine o'clock. I have a moving truck already loaded with my stuff from my previous condo. 
the owners are there. They've already signed off in the morning on their home. And now I'm stuck with this loan that wasn't anything that I had agreed to. Now, I could walk away, but I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I was a typical case where they took advantage and they rolled me under an entirely different loan, which I am 100% certain put more money in the pocket of my lender. I had met with him a few times and he was very nervous all of the time. And uh, one time he actually left me there for like 20 minutes and went into the bathroom. I had to actually ask somebody to see if he was okay. He had said he had diarrhea. No joke. Well, yeah, because at this time, if you remember and you go back to how we uh, had an economic collapse, everyone was under pressure in these banks right or wrong. I mean, they did us all very dirty, probably gave this guy an ulcer. And so I signed everything. We did not close until 9 p.m. And I won't go into all of that, but I will say I was a perfect example of a loan gone wrong, didn't ask enough questions. It's a Friday. I have a moving truck and a child I'm picking up from elementary school who's excited to go into this new house with a big backyard. And it was just one of those life lessons of shoulda, woulda, coulda. And I really was going to dispute it on Monday, but they had claimed that it was over the time period where I could file a complaint. Now, that's not true because Saturday and Sunday are not a business working day, but they screwed me over, told me I couldn't complain about it to just deal with it. So I'm sharing all of that because this has a lot to do with why I moved down to Florida in the first place. And honestly, if you had told me I was ever going to live in Florida, I would have thought you were crazy. I did enjoy visiting. I didn't mind seeing my parents and I was lucky to have my brother uh, and sister-in-law at the time and my niece and nephew. So it was like this great, you know, spot where the other half of my family lived. But we started to collapse in our software company. It was called Allen Systems Group. And the irony is I live in Naples now, Naples, Florida, and that's where they were based. And the owner of that company was also part of the whole bank loan swindle on the opposite side from his perspective, which I'll explain. And so we were in a situation where I was in a management role where I had to lay off my sales team and I went to a 50% pay cut. Maybe it was 40%, but it was pretty severe. And management was no longer eligible for any type of commission. So the sales team had their salary reduced. And then they could make up for it on the commission side to a smaller degree, like the commissions were still cut in half. But the reasoning was to keep them working and allow them to, you know, try and be incentivized by a commission. But mind you, the world is coming to an end. So no one's, you know, buying millions of dollars worth of software. It was awful. It was a terrible, terrible time. And so I was very unsure of what was going to happen. The way that our CEO operated at the time, and his name's Art Allen, you can look all this stuff up if you're even so curious. He was very much part of the big short movie as well. He made his money by acquiring software through acquisition. And so while we didn't develop our own software, we acquired smaller companies and we bought all their maintenance, uh, software maintenance. And 
that's how we grew our company by acquisition. The interesting part, and you don't know a lot of this at the time when things are happening behind closed doors, is that if he bought a company, bought a a document company, I forget the name of it at the time, but he bought a document company. Let's say the value was 30 million. He would purchase it for 130 million. And he would carry that debt because he felt like we were in a position to grow the company before the downfall. And um, he believed in, you know, hiring more salespeople to make up that deficit. And then he would buy a yacht, which he did. And then he would buy another company and up the loan and he would buy a house or build it in Colorado. This went on with every company that we bought. And in Naples at the time, he was somebody that had like a 30,000 or maybe it's 28,000 square foot home in Naples that was built. It was one of the largest at the time. And that was another thing that he bought. And this was all leveraged through loans that were overvaluating the acquisitions that he was purchasing, if that makes sense. So he too screwed us over, just like my lender, because now we're up Shit's Creek financially. And the world is collapsing. So he's behind in his debt. I'm on my loan that is fraudulent anyway. And we're all under a pay cut. And I was watching my sales team get a new job and be like the, the last one and first one out. So even when they would get another job, which I was grateful to hear, you know, two months later, they'd be laid off again because... Detroit was still faltering. And if you think back to the areas that were hit the hardest, Detroit started the downfall because it was a big automotive environment. And, you know, all of those big three had to really cut their sales team or, or part of the company and manufacturer reps and everything. So we were, oh, it was a depressing time. I mean, we were hit hard and tempers were up. It was a really uncomfortable time for everybody. So I think I felt it quickly more than a lot of people because we were based out of Michigan. And so one time I was with my CEO, who, by the way, I don't know if this is going to make any sense either, but I wondered why he always wanted to ride with me. You know, it was it was weird that he would ride with me. Usually he would have a limousine take him around to different meetings, but he would have me ride with him in my car. And it was because I had the financial services sector for this company. And he would have all of these secret door meetings while I was having a meeting. I thought he was coming with me. But lo and behold, he was getting more loans through the bank and leveraging my my schedule to align with trying to do a backdoor deal with these, these banks. It's disgusting, actually. But I didn't know. But At the time, he sat me down and he said, listen, I know you have family in Florida. Why don't you come down to Florida? The economy is still great down here and you can be with them. And I was like, okay, you know, that's kind of cool. My CEO is asking me to move to Florida and he's going to take care and make sure that I am still going to be in a management role. And it was his doing and his suggestion. And so I got the ball rolling, which is not easy when you're divorced. And we've already established that my brother-in-law was my ex-husband's attorney. So we were in court for a very long time and they dragged it out way past the school year. That's a whole nother story. But anyway, I had to jump through hoops to get that approval. 
And I finally did. And away we went. So it was kind of a exciting time to move down and be closer to family as well. And my mom and Joe were extremely close. She was always now picking up the loose ends. Like I mentioned, she was kind of understanding how difficult it was for me. So the two of them were were very, very close. He would go to her house a lot after school and she would spoil him rotten. So it was all uh, on the positive side. It was great. My nephew and Joe played flag football. We They won a championship game. Like it was just very cool time. But then lo and behold, you know, no one was no one was free from that economic downfall. And so Florida finally followed suit. Pricewaterhouse right in downtown Tampa, I remember reading the headlines that they laid off 2,600 people. And so now my state was getting hit pretty tough. And um, I eventually was laid off from that company. And now there's really nowhere to go because if you've read anything, you know that Florida is a tax-free state and their salaries suck. So what I was making in my management role in Michigan, there's no way I would ever have that equivalent salary in Florida. Plus, it was software and the any company was just laying off, laying off, laying off. So I ended up getting my real estate license uh, during that time. And I share that because It was a very difficult time, but a strange blessing in disguise. So at this time, and my son's now a senior in high school, my mom comes down with leukemia. And to this day, I still have the voicemail. I've saved two voicemails from her. Um, The first one is just her seeing if I'm home. She wants to stop by. And I heard it in her voice when I heard the email or voicemail, you know, she's like, if you're home, um, I just want to come by and say hello. And that was it. And she hung up. So a few minutes later, she knocked on the door and I knew, I knew something was wrong. So both her and my father come up to the condo. We're sitting up there in the living room and she explains that she has acute myeloid leukemia. It's called AML. And leukemia is a difficult All of them are difficult, but this particular one, as I researched and learned a little bit further, we really had no chance of this ever being something that she could fight through and survive. And in true fashion, which I've shared with you with the marriage, (laughs) my parents had an argument and my dad was just being a jerk. Now, everyone handles this type of thing differently. So this moment too will come full circle, but he was so abrupt and rude to my mom as she was trying to explain everything. And I got to tell you, I turned my head and I just lashed out at him because he was being so incredibly disrespectful at a time that I was trying to absorb as much information as I could. And I share that because I knew from that moment on I wasn't going to leave her side to trust him to follow through with this in a way that would allow her every opportunity to extend her life as long as she wanted to. So fast forward, the real estate job, as difficult as it was, and I sold here and there, but I was not, you know, I wasn't making what I was making in software sales. But the flexibility that this gave me at such a difficult time was tremendous. And I was able to 
I mean, there was a part of me that was like my dad. I did build a binder, which I'm sure some of you have done the same when you have a family member that's, you know, under a serious illness. You're never going to remember everything. You're repeating everything every time you're going to the next, you know, uh, scheduled appointment. And so you build a binder, what medications, what previous surgeries, last bill. I mean, you just have to have all of that. It's just, it's, it's tough. And I know I'm not the only one that, that has had to deal with that. Even if it's not a parent, if it could be your spouse or a partner that you've suffered through some illness with. So with this particular leukemia, she was having blood transfusions every week. She just she just couldn't keep on any of her platelets. And she would have to have a blood transfusion to be strong enough to then go to chemo. I mean, you can imagine. It was just a disaster of appointments every week. And she fought like a son of a gun. At this time, my parents had given those of us in Florida a Christmas gift of going on a cruise for the holidays. So it would be myself and Joe, my brother and his wife, and my niece and nephew, and my parents. And I remember going to Florida Cancer Center, and we looked at the doctor, who was being very optimistic the whole time. But, you know, you just, you know what some of the questions you're asking, the answers are not anything that will provide uh, a quality of life for even more than a year. So she had been diagnosed in October, and by December, we had talked about this cruise and we finally said to the doctor, do you think she should go? And she said, no, um, while I would like you to go to enjoy your family and build that type of a memory, I don't know how you're even going to be in December. And so my parents made the tough decision of staying behind and insisting that we all go as siblings and with our kids. And as difficult as that decision was to still take the cruise in December, we knew that would bring her such joy to know that we were we were going and creating memories and having a good time on her behalf. And, and that's what we did. It was an incredibly tough time, but we tried to make the best of it by having fun. And then we came home and we put together a photo album and we shared it with her and she was thrilled, right? Like she was able to see all the things that we did and and it made her feel very good that we all went and did that. She started to decline and we worked really hard to get her to Moffitt Cancer Center, which was going to be something that was a level above what Florida cancer could provide. And by the time that we got into Moffitt, um, they basically looked at her file and let's be honest, they looked at her age and they said, quite frankly, there's nothing we can do for you. So she is leaving me another message. So I have the one where she said, you know, I need to talk with you. And then my final message from her is the last night she stayed at Moffitt and she was scheduled to go home on hospice the next morning. And I was going to be there with Joe as she rode home in the ambulance. 
And her message was basically, you know, I'm going to go get some rest. I don't want to draw a transfusion tonight. I want to just sleep and I'll be ready to go home tomorrow. And it was a kind of a strange, beautiful message. Like she was just incredibly strong. And I remember um, the next day, Joe and I and my father were there. And actually, I take that back. My dad wasn't there. (laughs) Oh, that man. But he was home because he was trying to set up the hospital bed and make sure everything was set up. So that's the truth. He was actually trying to take care of things at home. And so Joe and I wanted to be there and and guide her back home by following behind in the ambulance. And there were times like, you know, we just knew she could see us. So we tried to wave and just um, drive her home. And there's peace with that. I don't know if anyone has been in the hospice program. It's obviously a fantastic, used correctly, a wonderful system. And they do prepare you and the whole family. And so when she was home, it was okay. I mean, I knew that's where she wanted to be, of course, and be comfortable. And and so she, you know, was right in the main room of the house. She could look outside. And for the most part, um, she wasn't in any pain when she first came home. Um, Not to be too graphic, but the way she was going to go was she was just going to bleed internally because remember these transfusions she was no longer doing. And with this type of leukemia uh, that she she had, she was just going to bleed internally. And that's what was going to uh, do her in under those circumstances. And so I uh, was there for her quite a bit. And the irony is there was a gentleman named Leo Junker who came to the same area where my parents were, the same hospital in Trinity, Florida, and he was a snowbird, and I knew him from my software days, and he worked at Ford Motor Company at the data center, and we were extremely close. It was a great friendship, a great relationship. He was the first person I called, or no, he actually called me the day I dropped my son off for kindergarten. And I had, you know, he'd been a daycare baby since he was born. And so I thought dropping him off at kindergarten would be a piece of cake. But Leo knew knew better. And so that morning he kind of watched the clock and called me as soon as I was driving away from dropping him off. And he said, how you doing, mama? <laughs> I, I sobbed. I sobbed because at this point you're leaving that you're leaving your child for the school system to now take over. You know, it, it was you you weren't involved really anymore. It was now like this is going to be his journey through school and you have to take a back seat. And um and so he was there for me. So fast forward, he called me and you won't believe this. Had I not shared with him what was going on with my mom, he probably wouldn't have gone to the ER. So he had woke up to severe bruising, which was part of what was happening with my mother, in strange places all over his body. And he was very weak. And so he did go to the ER at Trinity Hospital, and he too had the same form of leukemia. And he passed away a week before my mom did. So I have two people that I adore passing away with the same leukemia. I just find that incredible. I was there with his family when Leo had passed, which they were kind enough to allow me to be a part of it. And then shortly thereafter, my mom passed away. But I share all of this because when I mentioned to you that this story was going to come full circle with all the difficulties that I had had with my mom, it really changed when they moved to Florida. And they're both retired. 
And I remember visiting them one time and my dad was giving her crap in, in the pool. They were with their noodles in the deep end having a conversation while Joe and I were swimming. And I remember all I heard my mom say was, do you think I'm afraid of you now? You need me and I don't care. And so you're not the boss of me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that was romantic conversation. I don't know. But it was it was good for me to overhear because I felt like at this point in time of them moving down to Florida full time, they'd both retired, that the ball was even in each court. So yes, my father had created a good life for her, but she worked her ass off. And it was the insurance from the school system that put all four kids through you know, life um, with the medical bills. It was her insurance. And it was her insurance that was carrying them through retirement. And her pension contributed to his pension. So it was a level playing field. And whether I appreciated that marriage or not, it was this, it was this ability to break free from worrying about everybody. I had been in that marriage for a long time. It still took me a very, very long time to break free from being the third wheel, but I suddenly was able to see my mom in a different light and I wasn't as angry with her for staying with him. I never would have, not in a million years, but I understood where she was coming from. She put in her time. She knew what she wanted. They lived in a great Golf community. She made a ton of friends, and they were suddenly having a good time, regardless of what had happened raising four kids. So I felt good about that. And that's why, at one point, when I mentioned in a call with uh, Leslie, if you listen to my friend out in California, there was a time when I went to the house and I cried. You know, I just cried in her arms because I knew it was really happening, where I said, you know, no words are left unspoken. And I felt the most closure with my mom than my dad, because truly, she knew how I felt. I knew how she felt. She told me why she stayed. I told her why I wanted her to go. There wasn't anything that we backdoor conversation. It was all very, very up and up front with us. And when she was ill, she knew what I was dealing with and what I was going to be left with. Let's put it that way. And my dad was just not comforting towards the end. And... um. I was glad to be a part of all these appointments and be there to try and take care of her because he was very unwilling to do so. She still had to make him lunch. You know, this little lady with an oxygen tank, she was on oxygen and hospice. She had to make him a bologna sandwich and sit at the kitchen table because he was a man of routine. And I remember one time I came over and like the oxygen tank wasn't on and I said, Dad, why is this turned off? And he goes, oh, that compressor is driving me crazy. I just wanted some peace and quiet while we had lunch. I mean, guys, I just don't know how to explain. I don't know how to explain. That was my dad. So I flipped it back on. I mean, I was very irate. And um, I'm sharing that because this was part of the trauma of that I carried all the way until I started class reunion up until that point. I um I was very tense with what was happening with the both of them. And I took that end of life with both of them very seriously to where I let it damage me. And, and I shouldn't have, but I did. And neither here nor there. At this time, my brother who lived in Florida, you know, we'd had our ups and downs for a variety of reasons, but 
it kind of brought us closer in an odd way because he saw the dynamics. He saw what was happening. He saw the disrespect I was getting. He saw the work I put into it. He saw everything and how my dad was treating my mom during this time. And that's all I really needed. It's hard to go backwards and go through the stories and say, remember this, or I tried to tell you that. I mean, there's an age difference with us. He was married at 21. He was down in Florida right after Michigan State. So all that I dealt with was hearsay and probably, you know, came across as the youngest kid just being a brat. And I think suddenly he saw the trauma and the way in which I dealt with them, whether it was right or wrong, he just saw it. And he saw that I carried that burden with me. And he got into it with my dad a few times. He really did. And he was there a lot with me at the end with my mom. My other brother came down. Everybody kind of came down to see her and spend some quality time. And um, I'd like to think the siblings all felt good that my brother Tim and I were were there and we're going to take care of it, you know. And hospice wasn't as hands-on at the time because in Florida, everybody's on hospice. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's true. And I was able to give the morphine and I was able to help as much as I could physically with her and take care of her. And so the nurse would say, hey, it's not that I don't want to be here. I just know that out of my list of 15 people I'm dealing with, you're the one that's here full time and I can be there for other patients that don't have any next to kin at home. And um, that made me feel a little bit better because I had a little more understanding and compassion to why they were letting me give morphine <laughs> to my mom. I mean, I just felt like Kevorkian. I really did. I'd have to call and I'd had to up it. And it was a bizarre time. So now she's near the end. And my brother and I knew and um, we held hands and we thanked her for all that she did. And um, we did the Our Father, if you're Catholic, that's just what we did. We held hands and made sure she she heard it. Uh, and she had passed. And so we felt very good under the circumstances. And then you wait, right? Because now you've got to call in this time of death and hospice has to come by and then the coroner has to come by and we're just kind of sitting there waiting. So my dad's in the office. This is a whole story I won't get into, but he was very upset that she had died because he was unable <laughs> to access the bank and email. I mean, my mom had done for him forever. And mind you, she wrote down everything. He had the passwords. He knew all of it. But all he did the whole time that she was lying there in the living room was calling out demands from the den about trying to access the bank and their investments, and he was just beside himself. Now, it was his coping, I get it, but it came across in completely insensitive. And we had already talked about it 45 times. He was, you know, anyway. So now the funeral home is there. With the, with the coroner or whatever. And they were very excellent. They came in super kind. And they said, our process is that we close all the windows and the drapes and we allow the family to have a moment before we take the departed. And we 
we really encourage you to do so, even if you're uncomfortable, because this is the last time you will see her, and we want you to take that moment. I don't think my dad was in there. If he was in there, it was for 30 seconds. I don't think he looked at her. My brother and I did, and we spent some time. And then I remember walking away, and my brother stopped me, turned me around, and said, go back by yourself. So I did, and um, I thought that was incredibly kind. And I just laid on her and cried. And that son of a bitch, (laughs) my dad comes in the room while I'm with her and pulls me off and says, that's enough. (laughs) I mean, you got to love this podcast. I can cry and laugh within two seconds. It's the Irish in us and the German. But seriously, I am on top of her crying, hugging her, telling her how much I love her. And he's saying, that's enough. Get off. (laughs) Oh, oh boy. So she leaves and we're in the lanai, obviously having a glass of wine at this point and laughing because what a weirdo. Like he's just the most insensitive person known to mankind. And he immediately took down all the photos of her. Now, I know some of you are going to dispute this and say, well, he was probably so upset. And I'm going to say no, but I'm also going to say everyone does cope differently. But um, from here on out, every action thereafter was just uh, very odd. Took down all of her photos folded up all of her clothes. He had me at his beck and call every day thereafter. We knew what kind of funeral she wanted. She had already specified her readings, her music. I'm going to fast forward through a lot of this, but just this is what I was dealing with. He declined, as we were at the church, certain songs. She wanted Irish eyes or smiling. He said no. I fought with him in front of the priest. Um, Like everything that she wanted, he was saying wasn't necessary. So that's why I'm saying, yes, maybe there was a little bit of a coping in there, but everything was so negative and um, contradictory to what we had told her she was going to receive and talked about many, many times, obviously. So that's what was so difficult in planning that funeral because getting her wishes granted was like pulling teeth. And then her clothes had to be folded and sold, and he was going to do a tax write-off. And the guy was just crazy with getting rid of everything immediately. And I will say, he was in the den calling other women. (laughs) And I'm not going to call them out. But the guy was like on his own version of Match.com before she even took her last breath. And my mom knew and was laughing. And she often said, not my problem, it's your problem. Not my problem, it's your problem. And many of my friends know that my classic line, and I shared it at, at her funeral, was you know, the way in which she left this world with such grace. She came home on hospice and looked at me and said, let's get the show on the road. Like she was very comfortable in her faith. She was very comfortable on leaving this world that she had done her best and loved her children. And I admire her. I mean, I I admire all of that till the end. She actually 
where I said the story is full circle. All the all the time you looked up to her in school and um, thought she was fabulous, so did I. I mean, it had come full circle. A lot was forgiven and understood, uh, but only with her. <laughs> and she was a victim. She was a victim of a marriage that she chose to stay in, which bothered me. But um, and I paid the price for it, which is why I was angry with her. But it was her choice, and she was uh, just the recipient of a lot of emotional and physical abuse. And I saw it. I saw the end result of that, and I also saw her get out of it in her own way and have the upper hand till the very end. And so I admired her. I would never want to be in her shoes. But I admired her. I really, really did. She had a great life, great friends, traveled the world, and God bless her for that. So uh, that was a beautiful thing. And now we are dealing with my father alone. And many of you have experienced this. When your parents lose their spouse or their significant other, you are left with this other person that you think you know, but now you're you're forced to get to know them only one-on-one. There is no buffer. There is no other conversation that you have that's not just them and their personality and their thoughts. And so now I'm in a situation where my brother and I have to deal with just my dad one-on-one. And it got really bad. So stay tuned for another episode of Class Reunion where we will get to TJ Lauterbach. Thanks for joining. All right, friends, that's it for this episode of Class Reunion Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show, write us a review and share this podcast with a friend. Until next time.